You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange today. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Sound the alarms. Stocks are back in the red. Yes, the gains or the declines, I should say, aren't humongous, but the reasons why are pretty troubling. A key economic indicator dropping to a near three-year low. It's one of several data points that has our guests worried. She tells us which signals truly matter right now and whether we should officially start the countdown to recession. Now, as for the consumer right now, American Express still sees resiliency. Ally Financial sees rising delinquencies, and one in five Americans are buying groceries with installment loans. We'll talk about which names are still in the sweet spot and for how long. Plus, the airlines are supposed to be one of the main pockets of strength right now, but Alaska posting a bigger-than-expected loss. CEO Ben Minicucci joins us live for a CNBC exclusive ahead. First, let's get to Dom Chu, though, for the latest. How about this? In the red, but at session highs right now. I'll give that to you, right? So, Kelly, to Kelly's point here, we're red across the board, but we're off one-tenth of one percent for the Dow Industrials, 33,856, 40 points. The S&P down about nine to ten points represents the high of the session. At the lows, we were down about 32 handles, 32 points. So we're only off one quarter of one percent, hovering right below that 4150 mark for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq Composite Index outperforming a little bit off about two-tenths of one percent, 12,135 the last trade there. If you are looking for a real bright spot in an otherwise modestly red market, check out what's happening with many of the home builders and home construction-related stocks. DR Horton is the stock of the day. It's up 6.5%, one of the best performers in the S&P, after the home builder came out with better-than-expected results, profits and revenues, and the company said that it saw demand build for homes throughout the course of the quarter despite higher interest rates and higher prices. So D.R. Horton, a real standout there. That's giving a halo effect to names like Lennar, Pulte Group on the homeowner side. Even Masco, which makes home furnishing type products. Also uh, utilities, Masco, Delta Faucets, that sort of thing, up 2.5%. iShares, Dow Jones, U.S. home construction ETF up 2.5%. A lot of green with regard to that single family home trade. And then the stock of the day in the S&P, AT&T, those shares down about 10% right now. AT&T comes out with slightly better than expected results for profits. Slight, though, miss on revenues, but it was the free cash flow that came in below expectations that has everybody a little bit more worried about what's happening, although AT&T did, Kelly, reaffirm its full-year free cash flow targets out there. But it did gain some wireless subscribers, lost some in broadband. On balance, though, a net 10% drop in the stock. AT&T, the stock of the day. I'll send things Kelly back over. Dom, you can just imagine all the people in it for the dividend who are like, well, there goes my annual dividend in a day. Yeah, and that dividend yield is heftier now at these levels than it was before. We'll see whether or not it can stay that way through the longer term. All right, Dom, thank you. We appreciate it, Dom Chu. Let's look at some of the other weak data we got today. The Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index down for the eighth straight month in April, or contracting, I should say, and it hit negative 31 today. That's the lowest since the onset of the pandemic. Jobless claims, jobless All his claims continue to rise. They were up 5K to 245,000 last week. Continuing claims were even worse. They've risen by half a million since last fall, so it's taking longer for people to find new work. The conference board's leading economic index, it dropped another 1.2% in March, and its slide historically precedes a recession. Existing home sales down 2% last month as well. Is the recession almost upon us? Let's ask Jamie Cox. He's managing partner at Harris Financial Group. And Francis Donald is chief economist and strategist at Manulife Investment Management. Uh, Francis, let's just kick things off here. Um, weakening is the is the picture. 
weakening and this is the game with macro it's not about the level it's about the direction and for most of the leading economic data unfortunately we have both of those problems some of the levels of this deeply sharply negative data is consistent not just with garden variety recessions but some of the worst recessions we've seen and we continue to see a deterioration in the data that matters now we still get pushback but jobs they're still so high let's remember jobs are the last shoe to drop when we're in this type of environment so when we're looking ahead unfortunately Unfortunately, just about everything that we have on our docket tells us a recession is coming. And if you're going to push back against that, which you can, you have to say, well, this time is different. And it just might be. But if you're an economist with numbers, it's really hard to look at the stack of data and see anything but a recession right now. No, it's so obvious and normal the way that this is playing out. I wish we would hear more from the Fed about it, uh, you know, not about employment and inflation and all the last places this shows up, but about the stuff like claims like Philly Fed and all the rest of it that's weakening. Now, let me just ask you this, Francis. One thing that is different from at least 2008, consumer balance sheets are in a lot better shape. So as odd as it sounds to ask the question, do you think households can somehow, you know, bear a, a bad recession better than they might have been able to 15 years ago? Well, they may be able to. And the other component is that we still have a significant labor shortage. We had significant mass early retirement. We may see a pretty sizable recession in growth data that doesn't translate as much to the labor market. That might mollify some of the challenges that we're seeing ahead. So even though I can look at this huge bevy of data that says, well, it's quite clearly a recession, certainly there are elements that may make this a little bit less bad. My question for the Fed is, what are you going to do when unemployment starts to rise? but inflation is still at three to four percent. We've been so inflation focused with their mandate. They may have to actually say, you know what, we're going to have to cut even with inflation at three percent. That's going to be very uncomfortable for them. That is a great point. Jamie, let me turn to you because I, I feel like you're not as bearish, but you're also still in the camp of saying, like, obviously, like this is this is going to happen and the Fed needs to, to do something about that. So just and Ken, I know, for instance, a lot of people like you yourself focused on AI trades and secular winners, but can that really transcend these macro wins, you think? Well, the accumulating effect of interest rates or uh, interest rate policy over the last year is really catching up with the data. I mean, the economy is really struggling, and that was sort of on purpose. I mean, that was the Fed's game was to lower inflation. And when they slam on the emergency brake with Fed funds rates, we are seeing in real time what, what the effect of that is. And what I'm hoping is, is the labor market is actually strong enough to sustain us through the manufacturing piece of this, where the prices paid and the prices, you know, received portions of this can actually become transitory because the Fed made it that way. So I'm hoping that we can get inflation to rot, to to actually fall and actually have some type of, you know, economic slowdown that will not translate into the hardest of recessions. But unfortunately, the further this goes and the higher interest rates uh, go or stay for longer the more the, the, the reality is the recession will be harder and longer and deeper. Yeah. So uh, I, I do believe that you can trade through it, but it's not going to be an easy thing. And, and to add insult to injury, we're staring down the tooth of a debt ceiling debate, which is completely unnecessary. So we have a lot of things that are sort of already making it difficult enough for markets True. and the economy and then add on top of it something that's artificial you could get a very, very bad result in, in, in the next couple of months. Jamie, why is the market, and, and not just the market, we see plenty of you know, corporate bond issuance, we see like risk on kinds of signs that look pretty good. So if people were looking at the signal from 
equities from some of those things, they might say, you know what, it's just not that bad. And I can't understand that. I mean, things like jobless claims are so obvious, right? They're not hiding. It's out there. In play. And, and it's not horrible. I don't want to overplay it. It's up, okay, from 200 to 245,000 this year. But I don't think it's just going to go back down, right? Continuing claim. Why, why doesn't risk care more? Why don't investors care more about this? I, I honestly don't understand it. Once the snowball of, of, of jobless, once the snowball of unemployment starts, it usually gets really bad. So I'm hoping that it doesn't really start that much. I mean, we're still very in the low innings of it at the moment. But I think people are focused on the potential for the Fed to have to reverse course. So there's a little bit of that, hmm. I think, that plays into the game. But we've also seen it with the banking crisis, the, over the I don't know what you want to call it, but over the past month where you've seen you know, the Fed have to come in and step in really quickly to abate some, some more deep issues. I think you, I think markets sort of are conditioned to believe that the Fed will do that if the data really turn negative or if there's some type of other precipitating factor. So I think there's a little bit of that. In addition, it seems to me that the, that the market is probably the most net short that it has been in quite some time. So really? that we may see some exhaustion there. And I think we, you have one of these moments where people think maybe perhaps this is another 2008, but if it doesn't turn out to be that, then you're going to see a melt up where you're going to see unwinding of those really bearish positions. And I think that we may be seeing some of that beginning, what we could explain some of the resiliency in the market, where you've seen just the the end of the line in terms of what is potentially, you know, um, yeah. maybe not as bad as what people think. You know, and you're saying basically, kind of setting the net short position and everything, you say either from here we get a repeat of 08 or a melt-up like you were just talking about, um, if it weren't for the debt ceiling, you'd vote melt up. So for all the congressmen who love to trade stocks and everything else, hey, guys, if you want a melt up, how about no debt ceiling fight? I mean, it, it sounds to me like that's kind of what you're saying, that you yourself, I mean, so many Americans have bought T-bills for the first time ever. And now, you know, here we are heading into this. Yes, yes. I have sold more T-bills in the last seven months than I have in my entire career. And I'll be glad not to be doing it again, because I because it also, as we see them roll off, investors are starting to look at you know equities and say you know the value opportunity here is a little bit better than what it was last year in markets so i think i'll instead of you know sitting on a 5% t bill i'm, I'm going to take my chances on something more productive and i think that's that's a good sign and that's coming from you know a small player like us who who works with individuals and and if that happens on mass, that will also, you know, further explain perhaps that markets will be a little bit better in the future. And Francis, I'll give you the final word here. What are the ways out of this that you can foresee? Well, let me just say this. When you look at asset class returns in various economic regimes, recession is not actually the worst one, Kelly, because as Jamie says, it usually comes with rate cuts. The really big problem that we have here is we have central banks that have said, we know growth is going to slow and we're forecasting higher unemployment, but we still don't want to cut rates in that environment. So the way through is actually a standard garden variety recession. That's one of the better possible outcomes here, even though it doesn't feel so good on the surface. What we don't want is a recession without rate cuts or even worse, stagflationary environment without rate cuts. That would be the really uh, sort of bad scenario. Right, where they didn't want to cut because they said, well, you know, the CPI is still 4.3% or whatever. Uh, great point. Thank you both today. We really appreciate it. Francis Donald and Jamie Cox. 
Now, back in 2008, Amex was an early warner of recession because their small business clients started worsening. They were picking up some troubling signs. This morning, Amex posted record revenue, and executives on the call said they still see upside in travel and entertainment spending. But they did miss on earnings, that sending shares down a little less than 2% as they're off the session lows right now, but still one of the worst performers in the Dow. Joining me to dig into these results and more, Lisa Ellis is partner and senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. It's good to see you, Lisa. And um, how would... What, what message do you take from Amex right now? How much do you like this stock? I love Amex right now. It's one of our top picks, uh, mainly because it traded off some over the last six weeks, sort of in sympathy with the uh, the media, you know, the midsize bank uh, crisis. But actually, if anything, they might be an opportunistic beneficiary from that. You know, as they pick up some incremental business with small businesses, one of their core segments. But their results this morning were remarkably strong. Build business up 16% year on year, revenues up 23%. And it's really being driven by strength in the consumer, particularly their millennial Gen Z cohorts, continued recovery in travel, which was up 30% year on year, as well as their international segments, which are still recovering post pandemic, which were also up nearly 30% year on year. So, uh, you know, a really strong uh, result out of Amex, with the exception, of course, of expenses, which surprised um, a bit, uh, coming in a little bit elevated. And so as a result, put a little bit of pressure on the stock today. Lisa, I don't know if you caught all of that discussion we were just having. It wasn't very um, upbeat, <laughs> you know, maybe unless there's some Fed rate cuts to come. Well, but when you listen to that, what do you think, as somebody who's also very dialed into what we're hearing from some of these stocks that are also on the front lines of trends in the U.S. economy? Yeah, what I'd say is, look, completely understood that some of the early indicators like the manufacturing indexes, et cetera, that they were highlighting are starting to look shaky but from where I sit in payments land, staring at the consumer very carefully, so far, because employment has remained healthy and because the balance sheets remain strong, consumers, particularly the affluent consumers, are still out there spending. Um, you know, charge off rates, for example, at MX, you know, are up consecutively sequentially to about 1.6%, but they're still well below where they were even pre-pandemic. So just you always have to put that in perspective that that consumer is not just spending, but the balance sheet is actually still quite healthy. So they're hanging in there. So I think I agree with your former guest that if we can navigate this through to, you know, a run of the mill sort of uh, garden variety slowdown um, and not really crater it, then we should be OK. Right. And again, that is a, a big difference, obviously, from the household balance sheet back in 2008. So many other stocks you cover to talk about. You cover IBM. Obviously, we saw what happened there. Um, I can ask you whether time to throw in the towel on Coinbase after everything that they've been through in crypto land, PayPal, buy now, pay later. I guess maybe I'll ask you about buy now, pay later as, as a parting thought. Do you think this is going to become a, a, a defunct uh, business segment at some point, regulatory crack. I mean, you've seen how much this this story about people using it to buy groceries and everything is making the rounds. What, what, what do you sense about that? Yeah, it's a good question. My view is buy now, pay later is a feature. It's not a product. It These uh, standalone businesses, these businesses um, are will be difficult to make succeed over the longer term. But as a feature, meaning just embedded in another, you know, consumer lending product, like as part of a credit card product or a debit card kind of plus type of product, uh, providing consumers with this opportunistically, like for specific types of transactions, there's a lot of appeal for it. But usually it's for 
niche uh, situations, you know, like healthcare, for example, unexpected healthcare expenses or home improvement, uh, kind of unusual big ticket items should not be absolutely for everyday spending. And so understandably, the CFPB is starting to lean in on it pretty heavily. Right. Although Apple is also kind of in, getting into the space. And I, I just feel like they wouldn't do that if they thought that was going to raise a, a host of future problems. Then finally, you mentioned you like Amex here. We've, what else do you think is best positioned in your coverage universe? Yeah, so maybe a little more controversial one, but Block is also one of our absolute top picks. You know, it has traded off in the wake of this Hindenburg short report that came out a few weeks ago, which really held no water, to be honest. And the company came out with a lot of incremental disclosures to refute that. And Block, the key thing to know on Block is we have their uh, adjusted EBITDA figure up over 50% year on year because their margins are improving after wow. they sort of overspent coming out of the pandemic. And that's the number one metric the stock trades on. So we have over 50% upside in the stock this year with no change expected in multiple. It's really just on profit performance. Um, so love that one. It's a pretty uh, sort of idiosyncratic call on block there as they are dialing back their expense growth. I was just, you know, we were talking about this with a different guest the other day, but they were saying, you know, corporate name change always seems like a good sell uh, sign. What if block changed its name back? Bring back Square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I know we still all trip over, I think, say the word block, but they kept, they did keep the square brand, you know, on the POS systems for small True. businesses, which continue to do really well. And that's well, and, you know, we'll see how it evolves over time. Increasingly, they're kind of just known as square and then cash app, you know, the digital wallet. That's also very popular. True. Maybe that should be the uh, the new name for all of it. Lisa, thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis with Moffat Nathanson. Coming up, Alaska Airlines posting a wider than expected loss on higher labor and fuel costs. We'll dig into the numbers with CEO Ben Minicucci on the other side of this break. The shares fractionally higher. Plus a pulse check on commercial office space and a preview of two key names on deck with earnings. It's coming up in earnings exchange. As we go to break with the Dow down 38, well off its more than 200 point lows. Uh, there's the S&P 500 down 7 to 4146. Red across the board, uh, except for bonds, where the yield is at 353. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Alaska Air fighting back to positive territory despite a wider than expected loss, with higher labor and fuel costs taking a bite out of profit margins. For more on the quarter, let's bring in CEO Ben Minicucci along with our very own Phil LeBeau. Welcome to both of you. Phil, kick things off. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, ben, let's start with the question I think a lot of people have, which is for the airline industry, and particularly for Alaska right now, uh, are you seeing any softening in demand at all? Or are you still expecting this to be a strong spring and a very strong summer? Well, good morning, Phil and Kelly from Seattle. Uh, no, Phil, the momentum is continuing. We're seeing strong demand going into Q2. We saw it like from March and beyond. We were profitable in March. That momentum is continuing. And uh, we're reiterating our guide for full year, uh, you know, pre-tax margins from 9 to 12% in Q2 with strong double-digit pre-tax margins. Ben, given your exposure to the West Coast, particularly California, and the tech industry, 
What kind of an impact have you noticed as the tech, in, uh, especially the larger companies, have announced layoffs and pullbacks in terms of their spending? How much has that hit your sales to them in terms of corporate travel? You know, uh, Phil, it's a great question. At a macro level, we're recovered to about 75% on the business side, but on the corporate travel side, particularly with the tech sector and our major hubs, we're probably only recovered to 50 to 60%. And that is, as you said, a direct result of, you know, the tech layoffs and the uh, budget, the, the travel budgets coming down. I, I, I would think the good news for us, I think they've reached their trough uh, in terms of spending on, on travel. Uh, the good news for us, I think there's probably upside going into the future. We haven't baked it into our forecast at all, but I think there's there's upside going forward into the back half of the year and, and into next year. Are the smaller businesses, the startups, the ones that are still out there truly starting up, are they traveling as much or are they reined in their spending as well? Oh, uh, Phil, we're seeing the small, medium-sized businesses, they're, they're traveling and, and they're spending. So uh, that's what's kept our our macro level at 75%. So we're, we're looking good from that perspective. It's really the corporate travel that's more depressed than any other part of the, our, of our business. Uh, ben, it's Kelly here. If I uh, can Kelly, just jump go ahead. in. Phil, thank you so much. You know, we were just talking again uh, earlier this week about Southwest having this issue with its SWIFT system grounding flights. And we spoke to the head of the pilots union there, I think, and he said, you know, every night he's kind of holding his breath when they have to do their, their kind of daily uh, upgrade to make sure that it actually functions. What I didn't ask him, and I don't know if you can speak to this, is why don't other airlines have the same issue as we understand SWIFT as a system that everybody uses? You know, Kelly, it's a great question. What I will say is uh, airlines today are so heavily dependent on technology, uh, you know, both back end with all our operational systems as well as front end for customers. So I know at Alaska, we've undertaken uh, a huge internal study to look at every operational system and to make sure it's hardened, it's resilient, it's robust, so we don't have these issues. Uh, and on the customer side, you know, it's the same type of same, same type of thing. We're investing a lot of innovation. We just unveiled our lobby of the future, where we can get a customer from check-in to TSA in under five minutes. We're introducing electronic bag tags hmm. and self-bag drops. But all these systems, you know, are all technology dependent. So we are that what we need to do is really make sure that these systems are robust. And it right. just takes a lot of work and we got a great IT team, but you know, it, it, they are vulnerable sometimes if you don't put the uh, time into them. Right, and, and I guess, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at is not so much kind of, you know, just jumping all over them, but to understand, did you guys make a strategic and investment choice in terms of technology that's paid off without you having to deal with these issues? Um, or is this just randomly happening to just one of the airlines, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, you know, and I'm, I didn't follow the exact situation that happened, but I know there's always upgrades that happen to your systems and, and you've got a lot of relationships with vendors. So those are the things you have to be careful about when upgrades come in and, um, uh, and, and you're working on these systems, Kelly. So uh, I know for us, we have a heightened uh, sensitivity to this based on what's gone on in the last few months. And I know our IT teams are on it every day to make sure that every time there's an upgrade or we're changing something, that we test it to the full extent possible so that when we start up the next day that everything works. Hey, Ben, uh, you're in the midst of converting to an all-Boeing fleet. Uh, that means adding a lot of 737 maxes. You know what's going on with Boeing in terms of they may have to slow down some of their deliveries uh, as they work through this issue uh, with their supplier spirit aero systems. Uh, do you sense at this time that you're going to get all of the maxes that you expect to get and to put into service uh, through the rest of this year? 
Uh, yeah, Phil, I think we're in a good spot there. So just to remind everyone, we had 72 Airbus air, airplanes. We're down to 10, which are going to phase out in the next six months. 45 maxes on property, 30 or 30 more coming this year. And most of our deliveries are nine maxes. So the quality issues that you mentioned with Spirit, we're primarily on the seven max and the eight max. So we see all our deliveries coming in. We do have three eight maxes coming towards the back half of the fourth quarter, but we don't see that impacting our delivery stream or any of our capacity guys. So we're really in a good spot. And just to be honest, Boeing has done just a great job delivering for us over the last uh, over the last year. And Ben, how much is going to a single fleet? How much will that help you drive down your costs? Oh, significantly, Phil. Uh, you know, it's at least $75 million a year for us in single fleet savings, primarily in the flight operations and the maintenance area. So it's got just a, a ton of benefit for us. We're really excited. We know the historical benefits of going to single fleet and uh we're really excited that in six months we'll be all Boeing again, and uh, and uh, it's, it's going to be great for our, our people and our customers. Ben Minicucci, CEO of Alaska Airlines. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Ben and Phil, thank you both. We appreciate it. Again, Alaska shares fractionally higher. Coming up, Tesla having its worst day since January, down 9% after weaker earnings and a big miss on profit margins. But Elon Musk says volume is more important than margins. Do investors agree? And is it true for other tech companies? We'll discuss when the exchange comes back after this. Dow's down 32. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get a quick look at markets and some of our big movers. And we want to mention shares of Snap-on, which are up almost 10 percent, a little bit of a better sign, for instance, than Fastenal last week. Uh, this, by the way, also hitting a new all-time high and pretty much leading the S&P. They're up 15 percent year to date after they reported that net sales are up 8 percent year on year. So in a period where we haven't had a lot of great earnings news, this is one to highlight. Now, on the flip side, have to talk about one of the big Disasters might be too strong, but Seagate shares are down 6% after a big earnings miss this morning. Now, the storage maker CEO is saying customer demand weakened significantly late in the quarter. They slashed their guidance, and it doesn't end there. Seagate also agreed to pay $300 million to U.S. authorities in a settlement for illegally shipping over a billion dollars worth of hard drives to China's Huawei a few years back. It's the largest standalone penalty in the history of the Commerce Department's Expert Control Bureau. Again, maybe not an issue for them going forward. It's behind them now, but it's certainly adds on to the pile-on we've seen of bad news for STX today. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And here, folks, is your CNBC News update at this hour. Three people are reported dead after a possible tornado tore through Cole, Oklahoma, Wednesday night. Local authorities said the town, which sites, sits about 25 miles south of Oklahoma City, saw significant damage with trees and power lines down there. The Republican-led House passed a bill that would ban transgender athletes from competing on girls' or women's sports teams. The bill passed on a 219 to 203 vote, but it is unlikely to pass the Democratic-led Senate. The White House also said President Biden would veto the, quote, discriminatory measure if it were to reach his desk. And SpaceX tested its next-generation Starship rocket today, launching it for the first time. The uncrewed rocket took flight for about four minutes. There you see it. Before, there you don't. Tumbling downward, exploding. Elon Musk congratulating the team on an exciting launch and teased that another test launch in a few months will be on the way. Boom. The rocket, designed to carry people and cargo beyond the Earth, and will play a critical role in NASA's plans to return to the moon.
Back to you, Kelly. And we will have more on this in Power Lunch. Tyler, uh, looking forward to that. I'll see you soon. Coming up here, SL Green, lower after posting mixed results. We'll recap the office reads quarter and get the trades on CSX and P&G ahead of their results after the bell. Don't go anywhere. Earnings exchange after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's unpack a key office name that just reported and get the trades on two noteworthy companies whose results are imminent. We'll begin with Office Reit SL Green today. Its shares are lower on mixed results last night. Its funds from operations, a way to measure REIT performance, came in better than expected, thanks in part to legal proceedings. Its net rental revenue missed, though. New York City's largest office landlord also reaffirmed its occupancy goal of 92% by year-end and leased more than half a million square feet across 41 leases. Let's bring in Morgan Stanley REIT analyst Ronald K. Camden with his take. He's got a neutral rating and a $21 price target on the company who's trading a little under 25 today. Ronald, it's great to have you. Welcome. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. If I could put it this way, I, I don't quite mean it so pithily. What's the trade on SL Green at this point? I mean, they, they are trading, you know, several dollars above what you think is fair value. Yeah, I think that there's two key pieces for SL Green. One is the refinancing risk and two is the elevated leverage. So on the refinancing risk, as debt comes rolling, there's a concern in the market that they're going to have to refinance that at much higher debt cost and potentially have to put in capital, put in equity, pay down principal to get that done. And then on the leverage, uh, SL Green actually runs leverage much higher than the rest of the office peer group and the rest of the regroup, in fact, at close to 12 times. And the market needs to see a path to bringing that leverage down. So after the earnings, after the print, I don't think we've gotten clarity on that yet. Ron, do you feel like you're one of the most popular people on the planet this year? I mean, is there any category that is more discussed right now than office REITs? You know, I think commercial real estate generically and office REITs specifically um, has been a fever pitch of interest. Uh, this is the most busy that we've been. And look, the fact of the matter is um, we all found out because of the events of the last three to four weeks that the banks and specifically the small banks are the biggest lenders on commercial real estate. And if they're going to be tightening financing conditions, they're going to be tightening lending standards, that's a potential downside risk to commercial real estate. So investors have been looking for ways to express that. Um, and I think office, given both sort of the elevated leverage and sort of the decelerating fundamentals, have been a hot topic. Does it make sense to you? And, and when will the headwinds relent? I mean, are you now facing a period of many years where it looks like we're going to have pressure on the companies that you cover? That's a very good question. Um, look, I think the debate is different for the West Coast versus New York. If you think about sort of the fundamentals on the West Coast, they're the worst that we've seen it um, in terms of occupancy levels, in terms of sublease usage, and so forth. So that's where we're actually the most uh, bearish when you think about downtown LA, downtown San Francisco, downtown Seattle. Now, when I think about Manhattan, I think that's a much more of a refinancing issue. And to your point earlier, it's a little bit of a slow bleed where you're transferring value from the equity holders to the debt holders, right? So as these, as debt hold, as debt rolls, excuse me, you're going to see more of these REITs being forced to either put capital in through equity or through sort of higher interest costs. Right. And that's why, you know, and we've seen the results uh, there, obviously. Um, you know, just before we let you go, Ryan, do you still have an underperform on extra space storage? Because if there's two parts of this whole industry people have loved, cell towers and maybe self-storage, and is there any reason to think that those might not be resilient places to hide while we kind of wait an uncertain macro? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so still have an underperform on, on self-storage. 
uh, uh, EXR. It's a good company. We just think the stock is fairly fully valued, and the expectations of growth post pandemic just look a little bit too elevated to us. And you know, I think going back to the point on the on the office side, look, I think this is and real estate is a slow moving industry, right? Leases roll uh, pretty slowly, so. I do think that there's potentially more downside as we find out the full extent of the tightening lending conditions that's coming from the banks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Ronald. Great to see you. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Ronald Camden. So that's the review. Let's get to some previews. And CSX is first up, reporting tonight with the rail stock down 13% over the past year. As the transports as a whole slump, it doesn't help that J.B. Hunt this week said we're in a freight recession. And Warren Buffett cited railroad weakness in his recent interview with Becky Quick. Boris Schlossberg is here with the trades today. He's BK Asset Management's Managing Director and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, Boris. Here's the, the question on CSX. What do you do with yes. this stock or with the space in general? Hold. I mean, I think CSX is is a preeminent uh, transporter in the space. Um, you know, they, uh, they they obviously you know control a lot of the. Tra- uh, basically, rail freight is still going to be the dominant way things are going to be moved from A to B in this country for quite a long time. And even though there may be a little bit of a transport recession right now, I don't think as long as the economy relatively holds up, you're going to see much more downside on CSX. Having said this, though, it's not cheap. Um, I don't love it at these prices here, but if you have a sort of a three to five year time frame, it's projected to grow at around 10% per annum over the next five years. So I think it's still a very well managed, very good stock. One idea, if you're a trader, I think, is to sell the AUG30 uh, puts and just buy the stock a little bit cheaper at around the 28 level, where there's a lot of support there from a, from a price level point of view. Um, and I think uh, you will put yourself in good hands when you do that. Uh, you'll have a relatively decent price. Um, you know, the yield on the stock is, um, I think it's like one and a half percent, so it's not very uh, attractive. But overall, I just think it's a very solid, steady stock if you're going to be uh, positioned into the transports. All right, we'll stick with that one then, Boris. And finally, uh, tomorrow, Procter and Gamble they report before the bell. Shares are flat. <laughs> I see you shaking your head already. All right, listen, people they want the defensive stocks, but they're so expensive. They want the dividends. No. P and G's has a history of hiking it, buying back stock. You know, but they, we've, yeah. we've got no. a lot of big pressures, and we know we know of the, the valuation. Yeah. No, 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 I'm shaking my head in, in admiration. Not, ah, not in, I see, I see. Because, because it, this is the ultimate widows and orphans stock. I mean, this thing is, you know, it, it's the preeminent consumer goods pro, uh, company. Downey, Tide, Dawn, these are all brands to which consumers are fiercely loyal to. I think they've been able to really hold off any of the private label uh, onslaught against them. And here's the thing. This is, in my way, I think a, a bet on nominal wage growth. I think if you got nominal wage growth at around 4 4.5% for the next year, year and a half, um, they have a lot of room for a little bit of upside you know, price uh, uh, movement on, on all of their stuff. And of course, they'll be able to save a lot more on sourcing. So I think there's a chance here they could expand their margins without really hurting consumer demand going forward. Um, that having said, it is, it is rich. You know, it's 25. So um, you do have to have a longer outlook on it. But it's one of those kind of lifetime stocks. You just simply dollar cost average into it for as long as you as you invest, and you probably will be in very, very good hands with P&G. Yeah, why, why do the S&P? You're just going to do P&G, and there you, you just stick with it. <laughs> Put it in your 401k. I hope they don't uh, upset this apple cart tomorrow morning now. Boris, thanks so much. Good to see you today. We appreciate it. Boris Schlossberg with BK Asset Management. Still ahead, Tesla's six price cuts are definitely squeezing the company's profit margins. Its net income and earnings were down sharply year on year. Shares are tanking in today's session as a result. They're down almost 10%. 
Did they just set the tone for what to expect from tech earnings overall? We'll look at why the answer might be yes after this. Shares of Tesla are down almost 10% today as investors digest those first quarter results. They were in line, but net income was down 24% from the year previous. And profit margins, that's what's getting all the attention. Deirdre Bosa is here with a look at how this might be a read-through maybe to the rest of tech land, Deirdre. Yeah, so you just showed Tesla's stock price, but I want to point to these two charts. They are from Tesla's own deck last night, and they really tell you what the bears are worried about here. Uh, let's pull them up for you. The red line that you're going to see is Tesla. The gray one is the auto industry. There we go. In terms of revenue growth and operating margins, Tesla, that red line, still leading by a wide margin, but the gap, you can notice it is narrowing. So in other words, Tesla is getting less profitable, it's growing less quickly, while its traditional rivals in the space are getting slightly better on both those fronts. So that is why shares are down nearly 10% today. And there's worries that this trajectory will continue as Tesla faces more competition at home in North America, and especially in China. Now, more broadly, Kelly, margins are likely to be the story for the rest of big tech next week. I want to point to Amazon Cloud. It's a chart I look at often. And it's also another business that, like Tesla, has enjoyed better profitability than its rivals and dominated the space for years. It is also seeing more pressure amid greater competition from Microsoft and Google. And its margins are also being squeezed from 30% in 2021 to 24% last quarter. Revenue growth is also slowing. So this is a trend that we could see not only at Amazon, but at Alphabet and Meta and even Apple. It's that margin story, that profitability at a time when revenue growth is slowing down. And when do we start to, is it, we've heard from Netflix, we've heard from IBM, it's going to get busier though. Next week, that's the Super Bowl week, Kelly, when we get it all, when it's going to be busy, when you and I are not sleeping very much and we're listening to all the earnings calls and going through the numbers. So that is the big one. All right. Meantime, Tesla certainly uh, has its work cut out for it. Deirdre, thank you very much. Deirdre Bosa. Up next, Disney dishing out another blow in its battle against Governor Ron DeSantis. We've got the latest and the political fallout within the GOP over this clash. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Revenue from this tax season has fallen short of expectations, and that is pushing up the date the U.S. could default on its debt to early June. As a result, Leader McCarthy unveiling his plan to raise the debt ceiling that could get a vote as soon as next week. Kayla Tausche has the latest on what could be a doomed effort, Kayla. And Kelly, we could see the Treasury in the next couple of weeks updating the so-called X date for when the U.S. would exhaust its extraordinary measures. But in the meantime, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy formalizing his debt ceiling approach in a bill that, as you say, is expected to be put to a vote next week. The Limit Save Grow Act would lift the debt limit through March of 2024, return spending to 2022 levels and cap spending growth, and eliminate Democratic funding priorities like expanded IRS enforcement and student loan forgiveness. Republican support is still a work in progress. President Biden and Democratic leaders say that they will sit down to negotiate once Republicans have a plan they agree on. Yesterday in a speech, Mr. Biden slamming the proposal as a blunt instrument that would hurt everyday Americans. And today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the bill would not advance in the Senate. But there's no sign of budging from these intractable positions on either side, but at least there is one last resort plan emerging from the House Problem Solvers Caucus, a bipartisan group of 63 lawmakers. Here's the group's co-chair this morning. 
We need to really look to our leaderships first and say, hey, hopefully you sit down and work this out. What we've offered is a backup plan uh, in case things don't work out. But what we all agree on is we cannot afford to default on the full faith of credit of the United States and, and our, put our reputation in the world and people's savings at risk. That is unacceptable. The White House has not said that it would support that bipartisan deal. It has maintained its position that it will not negotiate over a default. And just today, in a press briefing that is continuing uh, just behind me, the press secretary took direct aim at several specific House Republicans, challenging them to vote for the McCarthy proposal and risk losing jobs in their district. Kelly. Kayla, one question we're getting is about whether the House needs to pass a budget kind of that can be a revenue bill, let's call it, um, so that if we get into a, a problem where we have to kind of last minute raise the debt ceiling, they kind of have this this legislation piece to go back to, but that we don't currently have something like that passed. So in other words, are the stakes higher than usual because the fallback plan is not yet in place? Well, the stakes are always very high in these scenarios, Kelly, and usually they get very down to the wire before there is any sort of compromise. See 2011 August for, you know, one particularly dangerous example. Uh, but, you know, what both Republicans and Democrats have sought to do is to decouple the budget and the debt ceiling process. They both say that the two should be separate processes, but they just don't agree on exactly what those processes should look like. Yeah. All right, Kayla, for now, we appreciate it. Thank you, Kayla Tausche. Meantime, we are seeing political fallout from the ongoing battle between Florida governor and rumored presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis and Bob Iger's Disney. CNBC.com political finance reporter Brian Schwartz reporting in a new piece that Disney is upping its lobbying efforts in the state legislature as it announced it will also break ground next year on affordable housing development just a few miles from its theme park after DeSantis criticized the company for lacking those options for employees. Brian Schwartz is here to discuss the latest um, juicy, you could say, a, a soap yeah. opera of sorts, but something that is actually raising some serious problems within the GOP. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, from what we're hearing, um, you know, there was there's been a growing group up until this point of very wealthy GOP donors who are interested in backing Ron DeSantis if, in fact, he ran for president. We've been hearing uh, for days, really since this latest salvo in the battle between Disney and Ron DeSantis since that Monday press conference, um, that they are now stepping back and really having second thoughts about this. They are looking for alternatives. Somebody like a Tim Scott of South Carolina um, and maybe others who could be that they've continued to look for this alternative to Donald Trump and that may actually not be Ron DeSantis for them in the, at the end. I saw Politico writing about Chris Christie again. Yep. So it does seem as though people are sensing that his DeSantis's position on this is, is it because he feels like he's doubling down on his base at a time when they say, no, you need to go kind of broaden out the message. Who does he think he's appealing to with these tactics? Well, it's clearly to me the, the, the base, the Republican Party. But at, at the end of the day, if you look at corporate America on, who lean more to the right, uh, they have been telling me since the end of Donald Trump's, uh, you know, tenure as president that they've been looking for that more, you know, frankly, winnable candidate who can win not just in a primary, but also win a general election, likely against President Joe Biden. And when you see these tactics, and really, let's be honest, they're strong arm tactics by Ron DeSantis against Disney um, and also, you know, through also his allies in the Florida state legislature. That really is not going to appeal to more wealthier Republican donors, but it could be an appeal to the base. Well, because 2016 was a message that what the wealthy Republican and donors wanted wasn't actually what won. Correct. And what won was something that looks more like what DeSantis is trying to do, but people would say, he's no Trump. You know? Yeah, exactly. Do, do, is that what the, the base even wants right now? Is that what they're looking for? And could he even deliver that? I, I really do question if there is data from the DeSantis camp 
that somehow shows that a base voter at pick a state that he has to run in if he runs for president, New Hampshire, you name an early state, that shows that that voter is in favor of something like this. What we're talking about is in favor of taking on a company for whatever reason that the government wants to take on um, and possibly impacting that company who's a major job creator in a key red state. Is that something that interests a base primary voter? I'm not sure. Don't know. We don't have the data on that yet. But I wonder if the DeSantis campaign or the surrounding PACs have something of that nature. Sure, and, and I'm, I would imagine they would be messaging it if they did, because otherwise it does look as though it's um, causing some headaches. I guess the question also becomes to Kayla's reporting, how the debt ceiling enters into all of this, you know, at a time when people are gonna really dig in their heels, politically speaking, kind of put everything on the line for what's perceived to be something that people want. And the debt ceiling, to me, seems like it's reporting, uh, it's coming up even worse than it did last time around. I think the fact that we've all lived through this has left people with a little bit of a sour taste. I think you're right. I mean, listen, we've seen government, the federal side, kind of go down these roads time and time again over the last few years, and we come back to the debt ceiling every time. In this particular instance, you're right, it seems like we're going down a, a path of a big problem as we head down to this deadline, but we'll have to see. And, you know, look, for the Republicans who are trying to take on Joe Biden in their own ways and preparing for 2024, there is a question of, again, if they go down the sort of fighting Biden on the debt ceiling and the Democrats on the other side of the aisle, is that going to help or harm them come the next election? Real cycle? quickly, what's DeSantis popularity in Florida right now? Oh. Or, or let's put it this way. What is the general consensus in Florida about the extent to which he needs to stay after Disney on this issue? Because it's been a while now. I think that, you know, I think it's fair to say that if you're a DeSantis supporter who he won overwhelmingly in re-election this past cycle, right. I think you're still a supporter of his in Florida. But the question then goes, what happens outside the state of Florida? But to your point, in his state, I would bet he is still very, very popular despite going after a major job creator like Disney. Or maybe because of it, depending on how you slice it, whether that plays more broadly again is now being uh, being being decided. That's Brian, right. thank you. Brian Schwartz. Thank for you. more, you can head over to cnbc.com for Brian's reporting. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Coming up on Power Lunch, Huntington Bank shares are among the regional banks that are lower today. They cut their full year net interest income estimates. The CEO will join us to discuss. Tyler is getting ready. And by the way, if you're a dog lover, you might want to sit this one out. I'll see you after the break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.